Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now but it's 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 easy to to talk about it's easy to sum it up when you just talk about practice we sitting here i'm supposed to be the franchise player and we in here talking about practice i mean listen we talking about practice not a game not a game not a game we talking about remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hello there folks it's me james and i do not want to talk about practice i do however want to talk to the gentleman that is here with me Diaz, here to talk about not practice, not a game, but some great, great Sixers guys this week. We do indeed have some Sixers guys to discuss. We do not have our very special guest, Xavier, with us right now, unfortunately. He will have returned to the States by the time you all are listening to this, but he is still in the land of the rising sun on the day that we record this as he turns 30. Happy birthday to you, Xavier, currently. I think I forget how the international dateline works. In the meantime, we've got another guest coming up, but Diaz, before we get to that, what's making memories for you right now? So we're recording on, this is Thursday, right? Yes, this is Thursday. This is Thursday. I had to be sure. Okay. We're recording this on Thursday. That means that last night, the NBA play-in tournament continued. Uh, we got the nine seed versus the 10 seed games, which is not necessarily the highest quality of basketball, but I believe all basketball is beautiful in its own way. And last night during the Bulls game, we got treated to, I think, the greatest subplot in NBA play-in history, certainly. When a returning former star for the Toronto Raptors, DeMar DeRozan, makes his return. And his daughter, DR, grew up, of course, in Toronto. DR is about 9 or 10 years old now. So she asked if she could come to the game like the old times. And DeMar said, sure. So he pulled her out of school. And if you watched this game last night, you heard some truly horrifying shrieking almost every time that the Raptors went to the free throw line. Like she's she's got a future as like an extra in some slasher movie where she gets killed early on. Like some truly blood curdling shrieks. Right, yeah, like it, it would be the scene like before the the title screen hits where like you just like you join in media ray, freak title cut, and that would be the horror film that was the Raptors last night at the free throw line. 18 of 36, 50% from the line. The Raptors are well, I think probably around like 70, 72% overall. We can check these things. Okay, we are on basketball reference. The Toronto Raptors this year shot 78 from the stripe. So 78% from the line, and especially at home where teams always shoot better. In a game that they led by 18 early in the second half, a lot of these free throws were not even in necessarily pressure situations. But it was incredible to see her performance down the stretch as well because DR realized she was fully in their heads. And in particular, the, the the climax of her performance was when Pascal Siakam somehow... Yeah, I'm so glad you're bringing this up, yes. Oh, my God. First of all, 
ref tried to ref ball as hard as they've ever ref balled last night. There is no world in which that was a shooting act when Pascal Siakam was fouled. Horrific call. Uh, but it puts him at the line with a chance to make all three to tie the game up. And DR shrieks on the first one and Pascal makes it. And this is how in their head she was. On the second one, she does the fake out. She doesn't shriek. You can tell Pascal was waiting for it. When he gets at the top of his shot, he like hitches because he's expecting the shriek. It doesn't come. And he misses. And then what does she do? She drives that fucking dagger into Toronto's heart on the third one. With one last shriek, Pascal misses. Bulls rebound it uh, and end up closing out the game. An iconic performance. And I, what I thought was really one of my other favorite moments of it was there was a point where Pat Bev got blown by and he just took the foul and like put him on the line, which was a very bad play. I think it was a two-point game at that point. So he just straight up put him on the line, two free throws. But I like to think Pat Bev being the troll that he is, he knows, you know, game recognized game. And he said, let me put the ball in DR's hands and DR is going to bring us home. And she absolutely did. She's not going to be at the game in Miami. DeMar is uh, being a good parent, which is unfortunate for the content because we're not going to get to see DR and Jimmy Butler getting a screaming match, which would have been great. But at the very least, we will always have the 9-10 play-in game, which statistically doesn't exist. Did you know that? Like this game kind of in like the record books, it doesn't count to regular season or to playoffs. So you're saying if I go to B-Ref right now, you're, I'm looking at Pascal Siakams because I had the Raptors open already. And yeah, he does not have any 2022-2023 stat. That's insane. Isn't that fun? It's a statistical anomaly. <laughs> it didn't and- happen. <laughs> It like for statistical purposes, the game never happens. And especially if the Bulls don't even make the playoffs, this will likely be forgotten to the ages of time, but will never be forgotten by us on this podcast. DR DeRozan, if she never goes into an athletic career, will certainly have the potential to be a guy emeritus nonetheless, certainly making memories for now. I know that she technically didn't have a contract with us. It was her father who did, but you know, I'm going to go ahead and claim Spurs legend DR DeRozan. There we go. There we go. Uh, what well, about you, James? I, I got a couple things. I would love to take a moment just to say, if any of them happen to be listening, how much of an absolutely phenomenal time I had last weekend when Baseball Barbie Cast with Jake and Jordan and producer Chris all came out to Baltimore to see a game that happened against the Yankees. We don't have to go into what happened during that game, but there was a game before that. There was an excellent live podcast and it was an awesome taping to be at. I'm rocking my free shirt currently that Diaz can see. I'm sorry that you listener cannot. Yeah, just an absolutely phenomenal time. I am so glad that I had recently spent as much time as I did talking about Dave Nilsson because their producer, Chris, is an Australian and we just talked about Dave Nilsson for like 10 minutes. It was awesome. I don't think he anticipated anyone First off, necessarily seeking him out during the meetup, and second off, seeking him out to talk about the manager of the Australian national baseball team. But what a delight it was to chat with them. And I am going to go ahead and put it into the world. I have decided the number one thing that I want out of this pod now is a live show someday. I want to speak that energy into the universe. We can coalesce someday. However, while it is baseball season, it is also the heart of cycling season right now. And that's what I want to delve into just a little bit more. This last week, there were two big races uh, in particular that I was watching, the men's and women's, femme and homme, if you will, uh, of the Paris-Roubaix, 
This is one of the really big single-day cobblestone races. And while this is in France, where these cobblestone streets are like centuries old, and there's a bunch of mud around them, and it's not like as insane as for any of our uh, East Coast listeners, like Old City Philadelphia or Fells Point in Baltimore, it's not quite as brutal as those. You're still racing on fucking cobblestones, which is the most bonkers kind of cycling to me, period. Like mountain racing, I don't know. At least you've got bikes designed for that. Like this is people riding the kind of cycles that I ride on cobblestones, which just turns your ass to pulp, I gotta say, unless you are like fully prepared for it. Going into this, particularly for the women's, which took place on April 8th, and that's the one I want to cycle in, uh, circle a little bit more. There was a couple storylines coming in. This is only the third running that they've had of it. They were originally going to start having the women's version of this in 2020. That got canceled for obvious reasons. Uh, but they did have it in 2021, 2022, both times won by the Trek Segafrado team that is sponsored by Trek Cycles and Segafrado, which is a Italian coffee company. They had won both. They're like a titan in the sport. The other thing, which doesn't play too much in this, but is just fascinating to me as a cycling nerd, is variable pressure controls, which is something that is coming around for these cobblestone races now. Diaz, what do you think variable pressure controls means? Just out of curiosity. It would mean that when you control the pressure, it can change. Exactly, yeah. So for something like this, as you come to the cobblestone portions, you can lower your air pressure of your tires a little bit in the moment. You've got a small valve and a sensor that you can do to make small adjustments to the PSI or bar or ATM. I don't know what metric system they would use for that. You change the air pressure as you go onto it. And then when you come back to solid ground, you change it back. Kind of nuts to me that that's allowed when they won't allow things like glucose monitors for cyclists right now. So you can see what your blood sugar is at any moment. But that didn't end up playing into it too much. Nor surprisingly enough, did the Trek Segafredo team. They ended up barely being a part of it because really early on in the race, there was uh, an early breakaway. This is like maybe a tenth of the way into it. And about 18 riders got separated from the peloton, took off, and maintained a like several-minute lead for the rest of the race. This like Very often when this happens, you see it, they fall back pretty quickly. The Bigger riders are typically going to stay in that peloton because they're trying to save up all their energy for later. They've got their teammates that are letting them coast. And people made attempts. Like, there were people that tried to come out every time they did it. Either they didn't have the juice to catch up, or we did have a couple, like, big crashes that led to even bigger gaps. And eventually, the people in the breakaway just ended up winning. Uh, It ended up being Canadian Allison Jackson, specifically, who won for Team EF Education First Dash Tibco dash SVB. The SVB there does stand for current disgraced financial institution, Silicon Valley Bank. They were one of the sponsors of this team. And the owner of this team is Cynthia Jackson. No relation to Allison Jackson, but I am tickled by the fact that Cynthia Jackson was in her 30s, a uh, investment banker who just decided she wanted to become an Olympian cyclist, succeeded, and then went back to banking. The reason, however, that I bring all of this up, it was an incredible race. Shouts to Allison Jackson for an incredible win. The problem is that with the women's race, it was not broadcast until halfway through the race. So I was following on Twitter for this whole thing. I've got a bunch of cycling accounts that I keep up with, and I like was aware of what was going on. I didn't get any video until halfway through, at which point, if you tuned in, you'd be like, wait, what the fuck? 
all of the favorites are in this Peloton that is now like five minutes behind these breakaway winners who eventually go on to win. So you didn't even get to see the most incredible part of this race that happened. Whereas the next day when they had the Paris Roubaix homme, the men's version, the whole thing was broadcast. And that was honestly, there was nothing like exciting in it. It was just a normal cycling race. And I do try to look for like the ones where something crazy is happening. Those hold my attention a little bit more. And I just wish that they had made it possible for everyone to hold their attention. This is like by far the greatest win of Allison Jackson's career to this point. She is blatantly said that she's like, I could retire tomorrow. And like the highlight is defined and set in stone. That is going to be, unless I do some more incredibly shocking things, the greatest moment of my life. And we did at least get to see her win. Hopefully we get to see the moment that leads to her win in the future. Hopefully the fact that this is what happened is going to indicate to anyone interested in broadcasting this that, hey, maybe next year we should have the whole race available for the world to watch. But since you didn't get a chance to watch it, I'm sure you didn't listen her because no one did. I want to let you know that it was incredible. And I hope you were watching the rest of what has been so far a pretty thrilling cycling season. Just like imagine that with like any other sport. Like imagine the, as much as I hate, the Patriots and Tom Brady. Imagine if you tune in to the Patriots Falcons Super Bowl and you're like, what the fuck? How are the Patriots down 28-3? You would still appreciate the fact that the Falcons choked, but we need to see the full event. We need to see the full event. Going to a different Patriots Super Bowl, I would almost say it is not necessarily a Super Bowl. I would liken it to the lead up to the Eagles Super Bowl win over the Patriots that Minnesota Eagles NFC Championship game. Imagine if you came in halfway and the game's already over. Like there's no point really in further watching it at this point. The exciting thing happened and no one got to see it. And it's just kind of a bummer. I do definitely recommend if you are someone that, you know, I know a lot of people are all about their Saturday morning F1 now or their Saturday morning uh, Premier League. Another excellent European Saturday morning thing that you can follow this summer is cycling. It has been a great season, uh, but that Allison Jackson and all of the women of the Paris Roubaix, who again are doing cobblestone races that I could not possibly dream of. That is who is making memories for me right now. With that folks, it is time to turn to our main event today. As Diaz teased, we've got some Sixers talk. He, he indulged a lot of Orioles last week and I appreciate that. So we are going to indulge some discussions First off, about Joel Embiid, unsurprisingly, but some Sixers guys, more importantly. That is, after all, what we're here for. And we are so thrilled to bring onto the show a new friend of ours joining us straight from Billboard.com and from a tertiary role in the ongoing universe of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast. Let's go ahead and turn now to our segment with Andrew Unterberger. Listeners of the present, welcome to the past. We are here today, the three of us, with a friend of ours, the hot sauce correspondent, originator of Sauce Castillo, of Billboard and the rights to Ricky Sanchez. Please welcome to the show, Andrew Unterberger. What's happening, guys? A lot of things are happening, actually, and there it is really appropriate, I think, that we've gotten you at this time, because a lot of those things are uh, based around something you like talking about, which is Joel Embiid. That's a, that's a true story. He's had, he's had quite a couple of weeks here, quite a month of March. Well, and hey, we're thrilled to have you here because I need to personally thank you 
Because when you joined Spike after the Sixers-Hawks game seven, I think you single-handedly talked me off the ledge. So we're thrilled to have you here, and we're thrilled to have a good running partner for our favorite 7-2 Cameroonian. Um, (laughs) Granted, so this is going to come out in like the middle of April. We're recording towards the end of March. Right now, temperature check. Do you think they're finally going to do him justice? Oh, first of all, thank you for uh, being with us during that that trying time. I, I I can't imagine I can't imagine why anybody ever listens to the podcast after they lose. Once the once the game's over and they lose, especially in such unbelievably heartbreaking fashion, like I just want to turn off the TV and not go to sleep, and not think about them for another couple of weeks. That's when you need the commiseration the most. I have always found. I guess. I guess. Uh, and I, I will say that like doing the podcast after the really heartbreaking losses makes the actual process of watching the games a little bit less painful because I'm so nervous about what I'm going to have to say about it afterwards that I'm a little bit less focused on the results than I would be otherwise. But that's all good. In terms of the Sixers right now, like it, it's crazy. I think we're all a little bit scared at the moment just because this is the most reason we've ever had to believe. I mean, first and foremost, in, in, the, in the Joel Embiid MVP campaign, which I think for a lot of us is almost as, if not, if not exactly as important as, as how well they're going to do in the playoffs. Uh, it's been you know, three years of, of, being, of him being in the top two both of the first two years, he kind of faded towards the end. Uh, last year, I thought he had a really good chance to win it with some dominant performances, or at least some signature performances down the stretch, and they just didn't materialize for whatever reason. Uh, Harden wasn't quite where he needed to be, and Bede maybe can still be taken out of the game a little bit more than he can this year. But this year, he, he's, he's gotten better every month for the most part, definitely playing at the highest level he's ever played at right now. And at a higher level, I would say, than anybody else in the NBA is playing at right now. And the team is kind of coalescing around him. Tyrese Maxey's, you know, he snapped out of his kind of midseason funk, especially coming back from the injury. The rest of the team, there, there's some holes, there's some questions, but they're good enough and, and they're solid enough and there's enough kind of versatility there that they can plug and play in a couple different sort of lineups and, and, and play a couple different styles. And it's a good team, man. Like, they're, they're, they're winning all these games. Uh, they're the best team since Harden came back from his injury in the beginning of December, I think it was, and uh, certainly the best team in the new year. And the Celtics are fading a little bit, and the Bucks are the Bucks. But, you know, we, we've, we've had pretty good success against them over the years. It, it, it sucks a little bit because you feel like if they had this team last year, they really could have made a run, and they, they definitely would have gotten past the Heat in, this, in the conference semifinals. Probably could have gotten past the Celtics in the conference finals this year. Celtics and the Bucks are really, really good. The Celtics are a particular massive nightmare for us, just top to bottom. The fact that we have to play them in the second round means that as good as this team is, we are probably still going to lose in the second round. And that, but that probably is shrinking. That probably used to be like 80-20, and now it's like 60-40. And they got one game coming up at the end of the year, uh, Celtics and Sixers. And the Sixers win that game, look out. Like We're all going to be in, in a fucking state, and we're all going to be believing in this team in a way that we haven't like in that sort of like deep down core sort of belief sense that we haven't really believed in them maybe since the first playoff run with Embiid where, where they won 16 games at the end of the season and they were playing a compromised Celtics team and it seemed like we maybe could get to the finals in the first year of it and every year since then we've just gotten gotten beaten down a little bit more and a little bit more and now it, it feels like we're suckers to be going for it again but you can't ignore the evidence Joel Embiid is playing like the best player in the league the Sixers have been the best team since the new year there's no real reason why this shouldn't be the year. And it kind of has to be this year because afterwards there's a lot of questions and questions we don't necessarily want to have to answer right away. So I don't know, man, it, it, it's, it's a tough spot because we all kind of want to keep our guard up just a little bit, but uh, it's a lot more fun when we let it down. We're, we're getting, we're getting reason to do that. Right. I mean, I think you nail it when you describe the fear, right? Like, cause that's exactly what I'm feeling too. Like 
I want to believe. I've been hurt when I believe before. It's it's funny though, like you bring up the Celtics. Obviously, that's kind of like our that's our bad boy Pistons to the Jordan. If we're ever gonna get there, we're gonna have to get through them. The loss with the Tatum buzzer beater is actually the most optimistic I felt all year. That's that loss kind of got me back in because it was like you saw the script that we've seen so many times. They get the big lead, they blow it, and I was expecting like, all right, they're gonna lose this game by like 15 now. But they fight back, and I mean, it takes a great shot from a top five player in the league to sink you. And I like, I was like, you know what? I can live with that. I don't think that's going to happen four times over a seven-game series. But yeah, fear is definitely the word at the moment. Um, what was it? Uh, Saved by the Bell. Like, I'm so excited. I'm so scared. That's like where I am right now. Yeah, man, pretty close. And yeah, you mentioned that that last Celtics Sixers game. I think we always wanted to see. I mean. Uh, a couple of these series we'd gone into in the playoffs, the second round specifically, and against the Celtics specifically, thinking we probably weren't going to be the better team in that series. But all we really wanted to see was one of those Embiid series where he just fucking kicks ass for six or seven games. And even if they lose, you say, well, not on him. You know, it's on the, the fifth through eighth guys for not coming through. It's on Harden or Simmons for no showing. But Embiid, man, he just played his ass off. Like, there's nothing you more, more you could ask of him than what he did. And that was him in that Celtics game. And that really hadn't been him against the Celtics. Definitely in those two playoff series, not in most of the bigger regular season matchups. So when you feel you feel like when you have that guy, even if they don't win, it's it's a better feeling than it was in years past. And you hope that maybe it's just it's just gonna be so good that that it, it is undeniable and that they, he does end up getting through that team, especially if, if Tatum is kind of reeling a little bit, which he has been the last month or two. So if I could ask a question, kind of going back to some of the other stuff you do, which is uh, editing a billboard, you see, I'm sure, a number of drafts there. We've seen a first draft of the Embiid versus Jokic argument that was rejected. We've seen a second draft of the Embiid versus Jokic argument that was rejected. Have you seen, in an editing capacity, any like real improvements over the way that the people like Diaz, who are trying to be this groundswell support for Embiid, have approached the argument any better this season? Well, I mean, it helps that the the, the argument is a little bit different this year. I mean, uh, yesterday I, I saw that that Embiid uh, finally passed Jokic for player efficiency rating, which is like a very nerdy micro thing, except when it comes to this argument where it's like 50% of the argument in terms of just Jokic supporters say like, oh, well, you know, he, he leads Embiid in all of these advanced stats, uh, you know, win shares of 48 and, and Raptor and EPM, RPM, all, the, all this other stuff. PER is sort of like the bellwether for this. Like, and I actually saw that, like someone, someone tweeted at me, like the last eight leaders in player efficiency rating were the last eight MVP winners. And that had been Jokic the last two years, and, and Embiid had never quite measured up to him in that. Now he's passed them. And so you've got people like uh, Vice Ricky Sanchez's Mike O'Connor, who are writing these really long and powerful and well-researched and, and generally, I think, mostly fair screeds about how these advanced stats don't really matter anyway. Uh, and more people are starting to start take them seriously on that because they sort of see the flaws that go into determining these metrics that are, are kind of black boxes to a lot of people to begin with. Most people don't really know what VORP actually means. Most people don't really know what PER actually means, but they take into account, and, and, and Michael Connors done a really good job of breaking this down, they take into account mostly the things that Jokic happens to do exceptionally well. So the fact that he leads in all these stats, people point to them and say, well, if he leads in all of them, then that must mean that he's just, maybe if he led in one and two and, and Embiid led in one and two, then you have an argument about who's better. But because Jokic leads in all of them, that must mean that he's actually better. And he says, no, what it means is that they're just measuring the wrong things. But a lot of people still aren't swayed by that, and they still point to those stats. 
But everything else at this point favors Embiid. Embiid is on the better team this year with a better point differential. He puts up the kind of better superficial stats, at least in terms of scoring and, and, and defense. Now Jokic doesn't even have the advanced stat argument locked up the way he used to. So if he doesn't even have that, I would say like, like losing the PER lead is like losing game six at home to him. Like it, it's really like a crippling blow to his, his case and, and the sort of discourse around it. Now there's still a lot of games left and that could swing back the other way. But I think a lot of people are sort of seeing anyway that, that, that a lot of these stats aren't necessarily telling the whole, the whole story and that Embiid is putting up numbers that are pretty remarkable on any level. The narratives are kind of shifting in his favor, and the, the, the national discussion is shifting in his favor, and Kendrick Perkins is helping, and so it, it does seem a like... A sentence that has never been uttered before. Kendrick Perkins <laughs> is helping. Sorry, just wanted to acknowledge <laughs> I, I, I that. I love having to cite him in, in this capacity, but look, Kendrick Perkins matters. Uh, you know, he's, he can sway a little bit of the discourse, and maybe not so much the people that are voting MVP, but it can definitely sway public sentiment, and that in turn can kind of sway the MVP voters. And look... A lot can happen in 12 games. The Sixers are going to have a lot of a lot of reason to play. You know, they've got a lot of a lot of big matchups coming up, and a lot of chances for Embiid to make his case one way or the other. So it's not written in stone yet. I think if the MVP vote happened today, he would win it. And that this is the latest in the season we could say that. Now I'm going to say something that certainly could, by the time we share this, be invalidated. But I have to say, based on what you're saying and based on what Diaz has been saying, it has been very refreshing to see a relatively level-headed response from Sixers fans as all of these advanced metrics swing in your favor. Very Philadelphia, because in a way it's measured, but at the same time you're being petty because you're still hating all of those stats that have been against Embiid this entire time, even now as they prop him up. It's really nice to see that consistency <laughs> with what you're like. We don't even need to bring that into the argument. Like, we didn't want to hear about that in the first place. Now that it's on our side, we still don't want to hear about it. Just know about ball. They're, they're, they're like bonus points. They're bonus points. And hey, you just touched on it, but like a lot of the metrics cover things that you don't necessarily think they would cover. Like DPPM, I learned a couple of weeks ago, factors in assists. That's like incongruous in my mind. That just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and like this this entire argument, like I, I really have like an ongoing debate in my head that it's kind of like my actual brain versus my lizard brain on this stuff where it's like it, it, on a very sort of, not objective, it's not a sort of objective, but a more even keeled level. I don't think it's like night and day between Embiid and Jokic even now. If you wanted to make a uh, case for Jokic, he was, you know, averaging a triple-double, averaging 24 points and shooting 63% from the field or whatever it is at this point. Like, I'm not going to say that that's ridiculous because he's incredible. And the Nuggets are the one seed in the West. And even this recent swoon of theirs, like, who cares? They're going to be the one seed. Like, they, like they, if, if the Sixers were swooning now, we, we'd be making fun of anybody for thinking these games matter because they don't. They're going to be the one seed. There's no competition. There's no real reason for them to, to be going 100% at this point except to bolster Jokic's third straight MVP case if they care about such things. But then there's also part of me that is like, oh, like you know, watching the end of the Knicks game the other night and like just rooting for him to miss threes because we can start calling him Nik Nikola Jokic and, you know, like talking about how he just doesn't come through in the clutch, even though he really has come through in the clutch pretty consistently over the last few years. But like you look for all those like small narrative edges to, to further the Embiid agenda, even though on some level you also have to kind of realize that this is ridiculous. We're splitting hairs between three of the best players in the league and we're all basically worthy candidates. Well, and that's like, that's what's annoying to me about it too, because like in another universe, I love Nikola Jokic. He's probably sure. my favorite non-sixer in another <laughs> universe. But we live in this one where basketball puritanism has been thrust upon us. And if you don't agree that Nikola Jokic is the best player of all time, you're a heretic, you're a sinner. That's also tickled me about it. Now that it's kind of swung back to Embiid, is in front now there's talk about the 
discourse being toxic. Like this, this is the same shit people have been saying the last two years. They were just saying about Embiid, and now they're saying it about Jokic. So now it's toxic. It's always been toxic to a certain extent. Like I, I remember reading about like why Carl Malone won over Michael Jordan in 1998, and then the reason was basically why not? Like like so, so one writer wrote, well, why not Carl Malone this time? I mean, MJ's won plenty of times. Let's make it Carl Malone this year, and that's what turned the tide on it. And so like it, this has never been like a very educated and reasoned and generally nuanced debate across the NBA verse. It's always been a couple people arbitrarily deciding things and everyone sort of follows suit from there. So I think we just, we just hear everybody's opinions now and we hear them a lot louder. So it sounds worse because the noise pollution is that much more severe. It's always been toxic. Now we are going to discuss guys. There's one last question. If you don't mind, I wanted to ask just to kind of like get in your mindset about guys a little bit. Uh, We mentioned that you, you work with billboard and you talk about charts a lot. And to me, other than award shows, charts seem like the most obviously competitive arena in the world of music. And I wonder if you ever find yourself with that finding sport parallels or guys that you latch onto for billboard performance versus athletic performance, someone mm-hmm. who you know never cracks the top 10, but consistently will get top 50 with like one single off an album or someone who goes off on a crazy long streak at the very bottom of the top 100, but still just hanging on forever. Uh, so just to kind of like, see through your eyes how you see guys a little bit in this other realm i'm wondering if there's anyone that kind of stands out to you in your work on that end well i mean i'm, I'm fascinated by those parallels in general and I'm, I'm fascinated by the charts top to bottom like even before i started working at billboard like this has always been a passion of mine even even before i really got super back into sports this has been a passion of mine following the charts and kind of yeah like like determining legacy from there and the, the ways in which they, they do tell the narrative of popular music versus the ways they don't it's very similar than some of the discussions we're having about the mvp race we were having a discussion about Miley Cyrus today and sort of, uh, you know, her, her new album debuted at number three on the on the Billboard 200 albums chart. Uh, most people probably would have expected to de- debut at number one just based on name recognition and how big the lead single from the album is. And I, I was, we were having a number of kind of discussions about her her legacy and her, her current performance. And I, I wanted to sort of ask my fellow writers, like, is Miley Cyrus a Hall of Famer? That's not really a discussion that you have in music very often. Like, it, it's not. I mean, uh, you, you can kind of create like an imaginary pop hall of fame that she might have uh, subscribed to or not, but it's it's not really a parallel the way it is in sports. But I love having those discussions, and I, I'm definitely fascinated by things like you know one hit wonders and like artists you think are one hit wonders but actually hit the top 47 times, and, and definitely getting into the, the minutia of those sort of debates. It, 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 it does feel like a lot of discussions I end up having about sports too. I just want to say, if Miley Cyrus Hall of Fame discussions are not happening more frequently, I'm glad that you are doing your part to further that along. I think that's absolutely a discussion that should be happening. That being said... Thank you, you, James. (laughs) We are here to talk about a different hall today. We are here because you have a case to bring forth before the tribunal. However, this is not one of our normal cases. You approached us with an alternative approach, and we're interested to hear it. Would you mind breaking down a little bit what you intend to do today for us? Sure. Yes. So uh, the, the sort of Sixers era that I consider kind of my purview is, is the the post Iverson era, which begins for the Sixers around 2007 and, and you know goes up to present day. Uh, that that's the period that I've been covering the team for. I, I sort of had a, a period before that. I wasn't really watching during the Iverson years. I, I was I was much more of a pop culture guy. I got back into the team, ironically, around when the time to stop being relevant in sort of national discussion. When they traded Iverson, started building around Andre Miller and Andre Iguodala. It's not necessarily like a great period in Sixers history, but it kind of led us to where we are now through a really circuitous path. 
and so I wanted to kind of sum up that 15 year history with three guys who I consider like very much uh, that guys of, of, of that period, not guys that like these, go- these aren't guys that would get their own chapters in the story of the Sixers of this period. They're guys that if you were following the team pretty closely over that period, that they definitely mean something to you. Uh, and for before I get into them myself, I want to give a, a quick shout out to Dave Ruder, who's a, a fellow Sixers writer who quite literally wrote the book on Sixers That Guys, the book called The Sixers Odyssey. It is just 40 to 50 chapters. And when I say these guys wouldn't get a chapter, they do get a chapter in this book. It is 40 to 50 chapters of just one guy at a time from the last 30, 40 years of Sixers basketball talking about their guyness. So uh, if if you're a fan of this podcast, you're a fan of the Sixers, and you don't have this book in your life, you got to get it. And you got to get it real quickly. I wish I had my copy like right here. It's in the other room, <laughs> but I I have a copy. I've read it through okay. at least three times. It's fantastic. You could have lied to the listeners. You could have said that they had it. I would have yes anded you. I've got you like that, buddy. <laughs> um, and I mean, we say they're not going to get a chapter, but we are kind of taking this time period today as a chapter. And we are going to decide at the very least which one of these three best sums up that chapter. Who is the abstract okay. as we enter this? So we'll be selecting one of these three to be the guy entering the hall on behalf of this era of a team that is, even if it's not all of our first teams, a team that is near and dear to the heart of this show as a separate entity. Oh, excellent. And so, I mean, without any further ado, Andrew, let's talk about some guys. All right. Uh, So I kind of wanted to break this into sort of three mini eras and the the sort of post-Iverson pre-process era where the team was kind of, you know, chasing 500 every year. The, the sort of early process year where the team was, you know, tanking, rebuilding, whatever you want to call it, but the, the, the first two years of the Sam Hinkie experience, and then the sort of contending years once MB joined the team properly and uh, they started making the playoffs most, not every year. Uh, so the first guy I want to talk about is Damian Wilkins. Uh, so Damian Wilkins was 30-something journeyman. Uh, he played a bunch of years in the, the 2000s in Seattle, Minnesota. He was a swing man that had no real marketable skills uh he could kind of get his own shot he could kind of play defense but you certainly wouldn't want him being like your primary guy on either end and they signed him Sixers signed him in 2012 to sort of be the kind of like an end of the bench guy that was supposed to be the andrew bynum year that was the year after the sixers had made the second round of the playoffs as the uncut gem sixers year and they sort of mortgaged a lot of their present to sort of make a longer term plan uh, trading andre Godala for andrew bynum who was then uh, you know, 25-year-old, you know, he's an all-star, he's considered a future franchise player. So it made sense to kind of have some veterany guys at the, at the end of that bench to sort of, you know, kind of shepherd the team. But he got hurt. He never played a single game for the Sixers, Andrew Bynum. Absolute disaster of a trade. Totally ruined the franchise for what would seem to be a pretty long time. And at that point, they, they probably should have taken the smart view and just kind of bottomed out and play the young guys. They had like a decent young core, Drew Holiday, Evan Turner, Nick Young, Spencer Hawes, and they just kind of needed a fifth guy to plug in there and they tried a bunch of guys and none of them worked they tried nick young they tried royal ivy they tried charles jenkins who i'd totally forgotten even existed until doing research for this this podcast and eventually they settled on damian wilkins because he he was around they sort of ran out of other options and he was not great he was maybe good arguably good uh he averaged about 12 three and three shot 49 percent for the season at least while he was starting and he he didn't really change their short-term or long-term outlook that much but he stabilized the team just enough to be competent you know, put up 17 and six against the Kings and that'll be enough to win them that game. And, and for a young team, it should have been looking to lose games at that point. He made them mediocre and that was the worst thing to be. And then he went 11 and 10 as a starter and Doug Collins, who was the coach at the time, just ran him into the ground. He played him 30 some minutes a night, treated him like he was like a, like a future core player, franchise type player. 
And it was just enough to kind of suck them out of the, lot, the high lottery that year. You know, they were, they were never going to make the playoffs. They were too far behind at that point. But instead of ending up with like a, a top five pick, they ended up with the number 11 pick. It ended up not really mattering anyway because that draft sucked. They got Michael Carter-Williams was the rookie of the year that year. Of, uh, all those, you know, not, not actually like a long-term core franchise player. But it was just so against what everybody wanted at the time in terms of the Sixers fans. Like we all just crying for something other than chasing the eighth seed and chasing 40 wins and being like competently mediocre. And we wanted them to either be really, really good or really, really bad. And it seemed like the latter was going to happen before the former did. Uh, and Damian Wilkins sort of became the paragon of the guy who was just going to prevent us from ever being that team, especially if Doug Collins was there, especially because he's going to keep playing him 30 minutes a night. Uh, so I, I wrote, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to quote myself here, but at the end of the decade, I did like a, a list of the top 100 Sixers of the 2010s. And I ranked Damian Wilkins number 59. And I said about him, when the kids ask us why Sam Hinkie was necessary, point them to Damian Wilkins. So I, I think he is about as emblematic of that era of Sixers basketball as, as we could we could ask for. And please don't excuse yourself for quoting yourself. I dream of a day <laughs> that I might be in a position to quote myself in a work that I've written. Uh, I, I don't know if this is necessarily something that's, that's passed on to the larger lore of Sixers fandom, but uh, to me it's a... It, it sort of tells the entire story about Damian Wilkins. So I appreciate you you allowing me that indulgence. Well, so Damian, first off, he's I'm Dominique's nephew, I think. There's some relation. Right. Yeah, there, there, there is some relation. I don't think it's father-son, but I would have to double-check that. Right. So, I mean, there there is some relation there. I remember Damian Wilkins because, AU, I don't know if you remember when the 76ers Revolutionaries was a thing. Sure. I was a member of the revolutionaries. So okay. I would, I would spend pregame, you know, screaming at every single sixer on the court, hoping for acknowledgement in pregame. Um, and Damien Wilkins always gave a nice thumbs up. So certifiable, good guy in my book. Did you still keep um, in touch with the uh, big daddy? Was that his name? Big daddy was great. I have not been in touch with him in a while, but there's a couple guys that like, I still follow on social media. We'll, we'll like catch up about the team now and then. Okay. Um, yeah, Big Big Daddy was was the main attraction. It's it's no wonder he's still, he's still getting the three season tickets. But yeah, Damian Wilkins was just like I envision like on NBA Jam, he had every single stat set to like six. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he's. We were discussing Mario Sports before the show. He sounds like a real Mario in Mario Sports. Well balanced, <laughs> but not particularly good at anything. Yeah, that's that's a, a fairly accurate summation of the Damian Wilkins experience. I mean. I mean I, I, I couldn't point to a signature play or a game that he had that was particularly remarkable. Like it's all just sort of a blur of, of games that you kind of regretted staying up late to watch and, and just, you know, the finishes where, you, where you, you, you're keeping one eye on the scoreboard, but one eye on like what the other tanking teams are doing and hoping that you pull out a loss before they do. And yeah, it did just, just not a lot of, not a lot of pop to the, to the Damian Wilkins game and uh, sort of, Emblematic of the, the general like morass of that era, where just just kind of stuck in the mud, just just never going anywhere meaningful. And well, he was out of the league whole, within a year or two. That whole season was like, I mean, I, it was the Bynum season, but like they got off to a decent start to the year. Like there was still like a 500 club through like 30 games, and I, I don't know if you did it, I did it. I kept doing the rationalization of like, wow, this team's still fighting hard, and you inject a 25 year old two way center in, and all of a sudden, we can make a run in the playoffs. And then he went bowling, uh, and that was the end of that. So, <laughs> Yeah, I had a lot of conversations that year with my Sixers fan friend that was like, well, if they had Bynum, they would have won that game. You know, they would lose against good teams by like three or four. It's like, well, yeah, having a nice all-star center in the middle, they would have really, really helped out there. 
And then as it became more and more obvious that he just wasn't going to play, it, it, it got doomier than it ever did at any point during the Joel Embiid experience. Like even though even those first two years where we're just sitting around waiting for him to ever get healthy, it was never quite as bleak as it was when we just realized that we'd, we'd upended the entire franchise for this guy that wasn't going to play that season, probably wasn't going to resign with the team. And even if he did, then he would never be the guy that we wanted him to be. And I said, there's nothing more Sixers, especially over the last 15 years, than having a season defined by a guy who never played a second. Just having like there be an Andrew Bynum season. Well, what was the Andrew Bynum season? No, he never actually played for us, and that was the Andrew Bynum season. You've had the Mark if I had a season. nickel for every time a Sixers <laughs> season was defined by a player who at no point said it. Actually, that one I'd probably have more than two nickels. You got a couple nickel. You might have a quarter. You might have a quarter. Yeah, <laughs> I would say at least a solid twenty-five cents there. The yeah. last thing I'll say is I can confirm that he is the nephew of Dominique Wilkins, also dead. Gerald Wilkins played That's thirteen right. years. He was more of a, of a that guy of that era, too, I think. I mean, maybe maybe a little bit. I remember he had some kind of Jordan stopper credentials, so probably still a little bit too, uh, you know, brand name for this uh, podcast, but he's definitely a guy. The second guy I want to talk about who kind of defines the, uh, the, 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 the pre-Embiid part of the process is Henry Sims, who came over from the Cleveland Cavaliers in a trade for Spencer Hawes. Trade was more about draft picks than it was about getting Henry Sims. We got a couple second rounders. One of them turned into Jeremy Grant later, who had a pretty good Sixers career and a much better career elsewhere. It was sort of like a prototypical old school power forward. He couldn't stretch the floor and he definitely couldn't protect the rim, but he had like a decent post game. He could pass a little bit maybe. And on the 2014-15 76ers, I'm oh, sorry, the 2013-14 76ers first, that was enough to make him the second best option on the team. Basically, he was the main compliment to Michael Carter-Williams after the deadline where we'd gotten rid of Evan Turner. We'd gotten rid of Thaddeus Young. We definitely got rid of Spencer Hawes. And he had a couple really nice games. I, I was doing a little Googling earlier to try to sort of refresh my memory on, on Hank. And uh, I found a 2017 headline that I had written that goes, Joel Embiid now as dominant as Henry Sims. And the great thing about headlines like that from that period is that I have no memory of how sarcastic I was trying to be at the time. The answer could be like entirely and the answer could, could be not at all. And as it turns out, that headline was a reference to a game that, that Henry Sims had against the Celtics towards the end of that 14 season where he had gone to the free throw line 18 times. Uh, it was a game they won. It was like one of the only games they won after the All-Star break that year. But I, I was writing about it because Joel Embiid had just done that. He was the first guy to do it since Henry Sims. And together, they were the first two to do it since uh, Allen Iverson back when, when he was in his prime. So Henry Sims, like the first guy in that period, we were like, okay, we kind of got one here. Like, we, we got a steal. Like, we fleeced the Cavs for Henry Sims. We stuck him with Spencer Hawes, and we got this, this guy who's a low-cost guy, and he had some upside maybe. Uh, and we were just kind of really overinflating Sam Hinkie's ability to find diamonds in the rough, like real diamonds and real rough periods. Uh, and there are many, many more of those to come over the course of the next few years for the process. Really only one, maybe two of them actually turned into real guys. Robert Covington was one. You could argue TJ McConnell was the other, maybe not. And those were the only times where it was actually true. And then for every one of those, there were six other guys that we were convinced ourselves were part of the future and really weren't even there by the end of the season or by the end of the next season. In the case with Henry Sims, the, he, he lasted till the end of the next season but at that point, we brought back New Orleans Noel, who was the first of many Sixers to, to miss his rookie season. And he was playing the center, didn't really fit alongside Henry Sims. It was sort of an untenable front court situation. We ended up replacing Sims in the starting lineup with Luke um, Bamute, who was like the closest thing we had at that point to a stretch four, even though he was shooting 30% from three. It kind of shows you just what a foreign concept shooting was to the Sixers at that point. Sims was out of the league a couple years later, but so was Spencer Hawes. So no harm, no foul there, really. And all of this is really secondary to what his true legacy as a Sixer is. And I'm curious if Justin knows what, what, what Henry Sims' true Sixers legacy is. Well, of course, I was going to, if you didn't say it, I was going to say the eponymous lick face. The, the eponymous lick face is correct. 
So for those who don't know, this is about as deep as it gets with the, the Sixers and with the rest of Ricky Sanchez podcast specifically. They, I don't even totally remember what the origin is. I bet you if you ask Mike and Spike, they would kind of glance at it, but they wouldn't have a, a particularly good memory of it either. Sometime during the Henry Sims era, they had a podcast where they talked about the possibility of being the sort of person where people just come up and lick your face just because you have one of those faces. I don't totally know what that means. But if you see Henry Sims, it kind of makes sense. He was one of those kind of one of those kind of like prematurely old faces. It was kind of droopy and it, it sort of looked like a, like a big cartoonish dog had just licked him kind of from, from cheek top to bottom. And this became one of the calling cards of the podcast, referring to, to Henry Sims's lick face as him being the sort of the mascot for this concept. And then it also became the calling card for the entire process. Uh, Mike and Spike sort of decided that they were going to create basically like a secret password for those who were around during the early years of the process and didn't just kind of jump on board once the team got good with Embiid and Simmons and whatnot. And they still, to this day, even though they both, I'm sure, hate it by this point, they're stuck with it. They sign off every podcast with Mike saying to Spike, are you down with TTP, which means trust the process and bad naughty by nature pun. Are you down with TTP? And Mike answers, yeah, you know, lick face. And to this day, you could also, if you, if you see somebody wearing like a certain kind of Sixer shirt on the street, you see somebody wearing like a KJ McDaniels jersey or a, a Henry Sims jersey or something like that, you could stop and say, are you down with TTP? And they would answer, yeah, you know, look this. And for that reason, and by the way, that's actually on like the, the, the Wikipedia approved list of NBA nicknames I saw earlier. I'm sort of shocked yeah. that it, it, it has that kind of national credibility. But it's on there and it, it, it ensures that Henry Sims will forever be part of Sixers lore for that reason. Nothing else. It is interestingly not on Basketball Reference, which normally has nicknames that have even been used just once ever and (laughs) and lasted then. Because I am looking at his Basketball Reference right now, which is also giving me the interesting fact about Henry Sims. He was a member of the very last season of the New Orleans Hornets. Only played two games, only had five total minutes in those two games. But those five minutes, he did wear a New Orleans Hornets jersey in its final season. I'm sure he made those minutes count, and uh, we, are, we are grateful to Henry Sims for his service. He, he got us through that first year in a very meaningful way. His, like, 18-foot mid-range jumper was absolutely money, and I can't help but shake the feeling that if a Henry sims Jalil Okafor front court played in, like, 1993, they could have at least been a three-seed in the East. That is a early 90s front court to a T. I think they could I, just two players miscast in the wrong era, in my opinion. Yeah, you, you, was, you could have set your watch to that offense for sure. There was a split second where I thought you were going to say that that could have worked, and it was going to be the first time where I really worried about your health as a fan. No, no, no. Of co- in a modern era, modern basketball, absolutely not. Trust me, I have watched plenty of bad center play along the way to getting Joel Embiid. I had no illusions there, but no, like Henry Sims in the early 90s would have been your perfect, not a Charles Barkley, but like, you know, a bigger guy that can crash the board, step out, hit an 18-footer, and not be asked to guard in space because they didn't ask them to do that back then. Maybe that's why it felt so fitting that he he kind of had that premature oldness to him because he kind of looked like he was from the 90s too. So <laughs> it, it, was, it was a good match of, of player and game. It just was not a good match for the 2014 NBA season. So... Less meaningful, I guess, would be the third guy on this list, and that's uh, Glenn Robinson III. So this guy is representing now the, uh, the, the Embiid era of the Sixers and sort of our, our, our repeat frustrations and getting close to the top of the mountaintop and then just kind of sliding back down at the end, the end of every year. And this was probably the most cursed year of the Embiid era, which was that 2019-2020 season, probably known to most Sixers as the Al Horford year. He actually did play, although just, just not as well as we hoped he would. 
And that was a year where the, the team was, was doing well. They got off to a hot start, but it, it seemed unsustainable, proved unsustainable. There were injuries. There were bad vibes all, all up and down the roster. Joel Embiid was in a, a, in, a, in a funk basically the entire season. He was sulking the entire time. Uh, and we needed some kind of late life that season. We needed a big trade deadline move. And the one we got was a deal with Golden State that brought over Alec Burks, who was like a pretty good scorer off the bench, and Glenn Robinson III, who we kind of needed to be that sort of big wing to defend like a Jason Tatum type in the playoffs or to just hit some threes and be a stretch four kind of kind of swing guy there. Uh, and he ended up being emblematic of two like fairly prototypical process guys. And that's the post-trade guy that we get way too excited about at first because we need him and he ends up not coming through. And that's also the three and D guy who doesn't really hit threes or play defense. Those are both very familiar player types to, to process trusters and, and Glenn Robinson, the third more than any of them. And he was also sort of unique in process history and that he just fucking hated being a sixer. Uh, we, we've actually like had, we haven't had a lot of really cancerous locker room types over the years that just guys are just cantankerous, malcontents, just not wanting to be there. Jimmy Butler was a cantankerous malcontent, but that's just who he is. That's where he was everywhere. But Glenn Robinson III, like he couldn't stop pining for Golden State the entire time he was a sixer, which would make sense most years, but not that year when Steph Curry was injured and Clay Thompson was out and the, the, the Warriors were 15 and 50 on the season. He still like just, just couldn't get over being traded to Philadelphia. Probably infected his play because he kind of stunk the entire season. He didn't hit a three until his ninth game there, which is absolutely insane. Uh, he was sort of soft and disconnected defensively. He never really kind of got it going on that side of the ball either. And he complained about not knowing his role, which is a weird thing because he had a very defined role that he just straight up didn't do. Like uh, the, I think Derek Bodner wrote about this, or some, one, of the, one of the great Sixers writers wrote about it. I mean, it. Did, he, did he not do it because he just didn't understand what it was? Was he truly that clueless? I guess it didn't seem like it was that much of a mystery to me. We had a very specifically sized hole in the lineup and it was for a guy to come in, guard some big wings and hit some open threes when they were passing the ball. And he didn't, he didn't do any of that. His stats, as I was looking at his stats are not that bad on the season. And I realized they, cause there were a couple games that he kind of went off in when like there were, when either Embiid or Simmons or both of them were out, he scored 25 against the Lakers once. I have no memory of that, but uh, the meaningless game, they lost about 15. And we really could have used him that year during the more meaningful games because, again, like we didn't really have those those sizable wing defenders. You know, traded Jimmy Butler. Tobias Harris wasn't really that guy yet. Covington was gone. Like it, we could have used him. It ended up not mattering anyway because it was that that was the pandemic season when uh, even once the season got restarted, uh, Simmons got hurt pretty much immediately. The team was basically out of contention from that point. Got waxed in the playoffs by the Celtics. And Glenn Robinson III didn't even play a second during that series. You know, he had kind of quasi-phantom injuries that popped up. And it was like, well, do we rush him back? Does he even want to be here? Do we even want him here in the first place? And everyone sort of agreed to keep their distance from there. And we're better off kind of keeping our separate quarters. That was basically the end of the story for Glenn Robinson III. He played a little bit in Sacramento after that. And he was out of the NBA. But he still comes up in conversation fairly, well, not, not fairly often, but one specific time of year, every year for the Sixers. And that's because at the trade deadline, like the, the most memorable thing about what, what, what do you most associate with the Glenn Robinson the third trade deadline experience? Well, Glenn Robinson and Alec Burks walked the whole way from the West Coast over to Philadelphia. It was like the trade was announced, and like two weeks later, it, oh, they're like about to get the physical done. Don't worry, it's coming. But it was like it's also a perfect microcosm because the, the amount of things during the process that was like I'm screaming at people. I'm like, this isn't normal. This should not be happening <laughs> on a basketball team. That's the perfect microcosm. Like, yeah, the basketball players aren't playing basketball. Sorry, what can you do about it? 
I mean, that, that's right, but it's actually even worse than that because the trade happened, like a, it was announced at least a few hours after the Warriors had just played a game in Brooklyn. So really, that's 90 miles down 995, maybe? Like, it, they should have been able to walk and get there, like, in time for their game the next night. In fact, it actually wasn't as long. I, I know, like, in, in my head, it's also, like, two weeks since the trade that they actually started playing. It really was only, like, three or four days, but the Sixers had two games in the meantime there, and they were just never really like like good excuses given as to why Burks and Robinson weren't going to be available for those games. It was just like, yeah, we'll see them when we see them. And like we, again, like as I've said several times, we needed them. Like we needed them to get there like immediately and they seem to be taking their sweet time and it becomes a punchline. And like every, you know, Jalen McDaniel shows up in his first game since getting traded uh, this year for the Sixers. And it's like, oh, well, I guess he got, you know, better, better map quest directions than Glenn Robinson III and Alec Burks got. So hallelujah for that. So another guy that just kind of lives on in, in Sixers lore, even though his play was pretty unremarkable. And uh, I, I doubt anybody else who, who follows basketball even really remembers him being on the Sixers or maybe remembers him as a player in general. But uh, he will he will kind of exist forever in that capacity for the Sixers. Yeah, Glenn Robinson, I guess the connection I also go back to is obviously his father played, I think, like a season or two for the Sixers. He was one of those like, 12 different, hey, maybe this can be the the running partner with Iverson, like Glenn Robinson, Keith Van Horn, Tony Kukoc, Mutombo, you had a little bit, like all those names just exist in like the same spot in my head. Uh, Matt Harpering, but spe- speaking of random white guys, Matt, Matt Harpering, do you remember AU? The Sixers signed a guy, I think he played for like OKC, like going into the bubble. He was supposed to be like a 40% three-point shooting guy. And I don't think he ever played again in the NBA. I'm struggling to remember that name. I'm, I'm curious if you could pull it. Oh, man. Uh, all I'm thinking about when you, t- when you talk about OKC and sweet shooting white men uh, you know, from the bubble year, all I can think about is Mike Muscala hitting that shot that, uh, that, that cool. got us Tyrese Maxey. Uh, so I, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of blanking on... Uh, and then there was there was you about, there was the one guy who played during like the first proper Tyrese Maxey game of the next season, who was like our, our third best player when like 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 two thirds of the team was out with COVID. But I'm not sure if that's the same guy you're talking about. I, so I think I just remembered it. Ryan Brokoff. Oh my God, I have not thought about that name since he was on the team. I I, I couldn't even correct his first name was definitely Ryan. The the, the last name may or may not be correct. But yeah, I, I do remember, like, we, I mean, that's definitely a hallmark of the Sixers year as well. It's just like that guy who gets signed to a 10-day and we all do like an hour's worth of internet research about him and decide he's going to be the missing link. And uh, it just, it just we, we actually see him play for, for two games at a time and then, then it's over. Like, yeah, but, but I, I, I would not have been able to pull that. So I, I did Google. It was Ryan Brokoff. He played for the Mavericks before the Sixers. Okay. He signed. He never played any games. He was waived during training camp before the start of the next season. Officially, his Wikipedia does not even list the Sixers as a team that he played for. Even wow. though he's the uh, trying to make Sixers you icon, yeah. You have to keep this information alive, Diaz. You have to keep the oral tradition going. Well, the, the other thing he had going for him was he was also Australian. So that was when we were still in our Let's Cater, the whole organization, the Ben Simmons era. So we were like, yeah, listen, Australian guy coming in. Probably knows Ben, probably likes him. think it could work. But yeah, Bro- Brokoff never played a single minute. Uh, so at least Glenn Robinson did play more for the Sixers than somebody else. He-, he can at least say he outplayed Ryan Brokoff. That is sort of the difference between this season's team and some of these other teams that we're talking about, is that there really isn't a Ryan Brokoff. There really isn't like that guy 
who just kind of shows up out of nowhere and all of a sudden we need him to be like a very, very key guy on the team. You know, we, we, there's some weak links in the rotation. Maybe Daniel house uh, is, is probably the closest to that guy on, on the, on this team right now, but he, he was part of the plan originally. Like we, we haven't really had to go to plan C and plan D very often with this team. And that feels like maybe it's the first year of the process where that's been the case. Well, it's certainly been a very guy dense era. I think <laughs> that is as good of any reason to kind of recognize that. But as we said, at the end of the day, we are going to have to pick one of these people who we think best represents that. Diaz, I know this is going to be like choosing, you know, a child for you. Is this a Sixers Sophie's choice, uh, a Mo Cheeks choice? Is that, <laughs> is that absolutely anything? It's at least adjacent to a thing. Um, okay. No, it's it's a tough tough decision for me because like I love the lesser known family member of a famous basketball family. We have that with Damian Wilkins. We had that we, with Glenn Robinson. The I third. was gonna say yeah, that doesn't help narrow it down too much. <laughs> we have those two, but then like in my heart, Henry Sims I think is the one that speaks the most to me at least because like that was my pure sicko era of Sixers basketball where like. Like I'm, I'm probably I'll watch highlights of the game tonight. I'm probably not going to watch the whole game. I'm going to go watch the the Nova women's team play Florida Gulf Coast. Hopefully they won. Hopefully they're still playing by the time this podcast comes out. It'll be the middle. Oh, that of won't be. They definitely won't. Play. They definitely <laughs> won't. No play. way they're still doing that. But like Henry Sims was like in that era where like. As a college junior, it would be a Saturday night and be like, hey, ready to go out, big party at such and such. Like, nope. Sixers got a 10 p.m. game against the Warriors. I got to see uh, what we do. It's like, the Warriors are favored by like 30. I'm like, big development minutes for Michael Carter-Williams. Henry Sims has been looking good in that mid-range lately. They need me. They need me tonight. So of the three that have been presented, I have almost certainly seen the most of Henry Sims in a Sixers uniform in terms of just minutes that I've wasted of my life watching him play for the Sixers. So I think I'm a personal slight lean Henry Sims. But this is a guy bunal. It's not just one guy's opinion. But before the other guys weigh in, uh, I'm curious. Like when, when you when you sort of heard of this being the discussion topic, was there one guy that you thought of? Oh, like this is definitely like the guyest guy of this period. Because there were definitely like a couple dozen other names I considered for this. So I thought Jakar Sampson was one you might have gone with. Point Jakar. What an error cool. that was. Hollis Thompson, of course, still shoots forty percent from three forever. Kind of weird he never got a second shot, honestly, because, like, 40% is 40%. You can lie about a lot of things. Davis Bertans has gotten a couple contracts at this point on 40% three-point shooting and nothing else. I will say, um, Hollis Thompson was the toughest cut from this list, but I just I, did, I didn't want to have three wings. I wanted to have a big guy in there, so I went with Sims over Hollis, but it, it was a tough decision. Right, and if, if you wanted to go point guard, I mean, the person that originated trust the process. That's what so few people know. They think it's a Sam Hickey thing. It's not a Sam Hickey thing. It's a Tony Roten thing. Tony Roten is the person that said, trust the process and kind of galvanized that into the national consciousness. So those would have been the main three that I was, I, I won't say I was hoping to hear. I'm very excited about the three you have presented. But as I was kind of sitting on it, those were the three that I was like really ready to, to jump in and start talking about. And, and I, I should say, this is sort of my six or sicko brain and that I thought like, oh, Tony Roten's like way too big for this. Like, like Tony Roden, like he, he almost made an all-star team one year. It's not true, but I convinced myself that he was on pace for an all-star season when he 
He had to start the first game. He and if he was hurt. all-star team. He's too it, good to be a guy. I considered Brandon Davies his all-star camp before. Yeah, like he, he hit two out of three half-court shots one season. Like he, uh, he, in my mind, Tony Roden has graduated out of the the guy discussion. He is just a legend in his own right. So, and no, and of course, defined to trust the process. So, no more automatic move in those early Sixers teams than Tony Roten driving hard to his left. He didn't even have to do a crossover. He just had to take one step and go, and he was going to get to the rim. And he was probably still going to miss the layup at the rim, but he was getting to the rim, damn it. Another guy that I, I, I kind of can't believe never caught on elsewhere, that there, there wasn't like just one situation where he ended up you know, fitting perfectly. It, it felt like he had NBA skills, just maybe not enough of them. I don't know. Apropos of nothing, it feels weird that probably the most successful is TJ McConnell the best sixer who like was very much a process sixer who then had a career following this period? What about Rocco? It is probably Robert Covington over TJ right. McConnell. I think J- Jeremy Grant probably got the biggest contract if you wanted to find it by that. Uh, Christian Wood puts up the biggest numbers, or at least he did for a, a year or two there. Uh, and people I, forget that he was a Christian, process I, yeah, yeah, wait, I completely forgot that Christian Wood was part of the process. Yeah, he was like fifth on the center depth chart in like 2015, maybe. He was not like a, a central figure. He probably wouldn't even qualify for this discussion, but he was there. That was when it was it was Embiid, Noel, Okafor, and then you still had Rashawn Holmes, and then you would get the Christian Wood. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 was, that was sort of how we, we stockpiled talent back in those days. And so you, you would have fifth centers that could be all-stars elsewhere and starting shooting guards that shouldn't have been in the G League. So it's interesting times. Well, speaking of interesting times, Xavier, I'm interested. We, we know where Diaz is leaning. I need a little bit of help deciding. Where, what are you feeling at this time? It's funny. You know, I was so transfixed by AU and Diaz just going back and forth and reminiscing about the Sixers. I was debating tricking our audience into thinking I wasn't even here today uh, by just not <laughs> saying anything at all. Uh, but I have to say, I, have, I was kind of won over by Lickface. That's just the Henry Sims story. It felt like... AU had the most to say about him, and then it's had the most lasting impact on Sixers fandom. Not by anything that Henry Sims did, kind of by how he looked, but still the mo- the biggest impact on the fandom from you know that process era. So I- I'm definitely leaning towards Henry Sims. So I've made an argument for each of them for myself. With Damian Wilkins, I am fascinated by the concept of this veteran who is brought in to be like a mentor to this young core that then never, ever even plays because Andrew Bynum never puts on a Sixers jersey. And then you've just got this like veteran that you're left with. It feels a lot like the way the Canucks have been very desperately clinging to just missing the playoffs for a decade now. (laughs) Um, It's great. You also have him, as you mentioned, Diaz, along with Glenn Robinson, his lesser family members. And then with Glenn Robinson... We have a teammate of Nick Stauskas, which I'm always going to love just a little bit. And it is hysterical to me that someone who so clearly hates being in Philadelphia has two different non-consecutive stints with the city of Philadelphia. And I almost want to, in this linking to him with the city of Philadelphia, make him suffer through that one final time, much as like, you know, you made Kurt Flood stick on your team just to just to have to deal with it. I did. <laughs> And then with Sims, it's a way to honor Sam Hinkie, which is something we have been trying to do excessively since not being able to vote him in during his episode, while also acknowledging a little bit that Sixers fandom has gotten maybe a little high on their own supply. Henry Sims is a good example of that overindulgence, perhaps. I can't really decide. 
So I've come up with a different metric because they've all played in the NBA and they've all played in the D or G League. I decided to see how many other countries they've played. And I'm just going to go with the guy who's played in those countries. <laughs> Fantastic metric. Glenn Robinson III only has Mexico on top of everything else. So Glenn Robinson III is right out. Damian Wilkins. We've got China. We have Venezuela. And we have Puerto Rico. I'm counting it as a separate country for the purpose of this exercise for Henry Sims. We have China also. Italy, classic. He's also got Korea. Tell me the and name of his team. Please tell me the name of his current Korean Korea, team. Korea, uh, there are, here's the thing. No, I know it. I want you to tell me it because it's very fun. Well, I'm almost certain there's two different ones. Give me just a moment. His current Korean team. because Well, yeah, so there was Korea. the Incheon Electroland Elephants, which are now currently called the Daegu Kogas Pegasus. And right now he's on the Olsen Hyundai Mobis Phobis. <laughs> wow. I don't know any of the words that I just said except for Hyundai, <laughs> and I mean Electroland Elephants. Here's the thing. He's got those. That's all been like what he's done since he left the NBA, since he left the Developmental League. But even before, way back in 2013, after being a member of the New Orleans Hornets, he also went to play for a team in the Philippines, the Petron Blaze Boosters, giving him four countries, giving him my vote, and giving him, I believe, Diaz, if I'm not mistaken, a unanimous decision today. Yeah, we do have a unanimous decision. Uh, this was an elite trio of guys presented by AU, but ultimately there can only be one person whose face can be licked and can receive this honor. And it is Henry Sims. Welcome into the Hall of Guy. Worthy selection. I'm proud of the process that y'all use in getting there. I, I love that he did play the most for the Sixers and it was still only 99 games. <laughs> Felt like a lot longer than that at the time, I promise you. I, they need to bring him back for a 10-day to close this season just to get to a nice round 100. They, they got to do it. I think Sixers fan years are very similar to dog years, and I think this is why those like two games that you waited for those guys after the trade deadline felt like two <laughs> weeks. You're living an immense amount of time. Very uh, That one terrifying ocean planet in Interstellar. That is an incredibly astute analysis, I think. <laughs> Well, Andrew, we thank you for your incredibly astute analysis of this era that uh, is so important to us. We thank you for the creation of the Sauce Castillo. I wanted to hold on to this at the end. Uh, we have at times revisited a game that was very formative for some of our sports fandoms, which was the home opener in the Jaleel Okafor year against the Utah Jazz, during which time myself and a friend of ours, Don Javis, who's here on the show, were kind of drunk, and Diaz was incredibly drunk, if I may say so. <laughs> and we convinced some people in front of us that we were all incredibly drunk with the volume at which we shouted Sauce Castillo for every one of his glorious minutes that evening. Well, an, an important part of that story, James, we started in the 200 level, but as was... You started the 200 level! We've gotten really nice <laughs> yeah. seats for free because they had to give away all the really nice seats to the home opener that season. Yeah, I mean, I, I snuck down there, and if there's any fan in attendance that heard some belligerent man yelling, keep saucing it up, baby, keep saucing that Castillo. I apologize. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my, my primary memory of that like, early stretch of that season was I, I, I convinced that I at some point I tweeted something about Sixers' new big three of Joel Embiid, Dolio Okafor, and Nick Stauskas. <laughs> and I, I believed at the time that that was the real thing and that that, that was going to be what we were talking about three or four years down the line. And that was going to be the trio that kind of lifted us up out of mediocrity and, and, and brought us to the promised land. And it was 
it was not meant to be, but it was still probably one of the five greatest moments of my sports fandom, the night that we traded for Stauskas and we got the pick swaps and all that good stuff. And like, it, it felt like personal validation of, of something that I didn't even know that I needed to be validated for. Like it, it, it was, it was such a triumphant moment. It, it was like that. And Jimmy Butler hitting that shot against the Celtics is like, two times that I was just like, I just had too much energy to sit down. I was just like stomping around my room and like yelling at whoever was willing to listen to me about what a great night this was and what a historic occasion it was. And those are the nights that are probably going to define this period of Sixers fandom for me more than even if we do end up winning the championship one day with Embiid. I would be remiss if we let you go, AU, without saying that I believe James was at least with me. Xavier, I forget if you were, but we were at that lottery party when Vladi, for some reason got cheered and that like time isn't linear to me and time isn't linear because that happens before the pick swap trade. But for some reason, a room full of drunk Philadelphians decided we're cheering for Vladi Divac. It, like it, there was no discussion. It just happened organically and what foresight we had. Yeah. And, and there, there are those, those kind of premonition moments throughout the, the process. Like we we're, we're having a live show coming up, the rest Ricky Sanchez. And, and one, you know, we have our, our hall of fame where we induct, one Sixers player, one Sixers moment, and one podcast-related moment. And the podcast-related moment that's going in the Hall of Fame this year is Daryl Morey's first appearance on the podcast two months before he was hired as the Sixers GM. When he was still in Houston, there's absolutely no reason why he should have agreed to be on that podcast. There was absolutely no reason why Spike and Mike should have asked him to be on that podcast. But they asked, and he said yes, and two months later, he was stewarding our franchise into this next year. It's It's they are the kind of moments that make you believe that some grander design is at work here, even though there's a great deal of evidence to the contrary as well. And to your credit, I mean, you're second guessing some of your premonitions that you've had about the Sixers in the past, but here we are talking about Jaleel Okafor and Nick Stauskas, however many years in the future. And it has been an absolute pleasure having you on to talk about all of that. If people have liked hearing you talk about things, Andrew, where can they hear you talk or read you talking about more things? I guess they, they can follow me uh, on Twitter. The, still the worst handle on Twitter, at AUGetOffMyGold. I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm tweeting about the Sixers mostly and occasionally about some of those one-hit wonders I was referring to earlier and uh, occasionally uh, tweeting stuff that I write or my, my co-writers write or that, uh, that Mike and Spike and Mike O'Connor and Sixers Adam write. And yeah, that, that's, that's the place where uh, we can come and, and get your unfiltered AU if that's something that you want in your life. Get that pure 24-karat gold, baby. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Well, thank you to you. Thank you to the Coders Behind producer, Craig. Thank you to our musical director, Don Hamm, and to you, dear listener, for joining us once again. You can join us again next Monday. Xavier will be joining us again next Monday. We will be happy to have you back here, buddy. But until we have you back here in the flesh, I've been James. I've been the silent, very special guest, Xavier. I've been AU. And I'm Diaz. And as Doug Collins once said, if he's the ultimate guy, why are they remembering them again next week? Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it.